This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 3. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's true word. We've been slowing our pace down for the summer months. And we are meditating on the Psalms. Maybe you have felt what it's like when the people who are closest to you hurt you. And they have the ability to hurt you the most, don't they? Maybe you know what it's like when people doubt you. I mean, doubt, doubt your character. Doubt even your intentions and your motives for why you do what you do and say what you say. Maybe you know what it's like when people doubt you in critical circumstances, even though you believe in good conscience that you're doing the right thing. Psalm 3 is the first of many laments, cries from the soul that you find in the Psalms. Psalm 3 is the first of these laments. And what you get to see is how believers in Old Testament Israel who believed in the God of Israel, how believers would approach God in their adversity. How believers in adversity would bring their case before God. And what I hope you're going to see in Psalm 3 today is that your faith through today's adversity can carry you through tomorrow's adversity also. That your faith in the God of the Bible today can actually carry you through trials and circumstances and difficulties that you can't foresee, that you're not prepared for now. Trusting him now can actually become a foundation for you in future troubles and adversity. And I hope you'll discover with me today uh, in Psalm 3 that the faithful saw something in their adversity. I hope you're going to understand and discover what to see in your adversity and also what to remember. Not only what to see in your adversity, but what to remember in your adversity. And finally... You're going to see what the faithful asked for in their adversity. So we're going to look at Psalm 3 and discover what to see, what to remember, and then what to ask for in adversity. The Psalms invite us to see things as they truly are. The Psalms encouraged absolute honesty. To look at your life, to look at your circumstances exactly as they are and go to God honestly and simply. Some English translations leave this out, uh, but I hope you have in your translation 
uh, these words. Some of the Psalms have biographical or editorial headings. For instance, this Psalm has one. A Psalm of David, it says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Some translations leave those phrases out, but they're really important because they were part of the original Hebrew. I believe we should take them seriously. What we see here is that this prayer, okay, this, this sung prayer, this composed prayer, um, was taken right out of David's own experience. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 tells us that at this point in his life, David was fleeing as a king, as an older king, he was fleeing from his son. And 2 Samuel tells us that he was fleeing, I quote, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. Now, the circumstance, uh, these circumstances were precipitated by years of complicated family dysfunction. David indulged himself, as all the ancient kings did. Um, Didn't make it right, but David indulged himself in wives and concubines. And a life of indulgence as a king... Uh, led to a situation where he had many children with different mothers. And these children, all half-siblings of each other, had rival, ambi- had rival ambitions, had, had competing loyalties. And in this case, the outcome uh, was the result of incest, which led to disgrace, which led to murder, which ultimately led to the exile of his son Absalom. So Absalom grew to hate his father David over the years, and, and actually he effectively staged a coup. Politically and from a military perspective, Absalom succeeded in winning the hearts of many people in Israel politicians, leaders, soldiers, and he staged a coup. And Psalm 3 expresses David's prayers while he is fleeing Jerusalem with those who were still faithful to him, fleeing for his life from his son. You can read all about this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 19. And so in Psalm 3, David begins by crying out to God with an honest assessment of what he sees. Verse 1, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? He also says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. See, Absalom had convinced many people uh, to run with him. He did it over the course of years, and it was effective. To the point where David discovered that half the kingdom had gone after his son. That half the kingdom was loyal to his son who had plotted um, a rebellion. So that people were honestly asking themselves, is the Lord's favor with David anymore? Actually, David began asking the question himself. Is God truly with me? Is it God's will that this has taken place? He really didn't know. And David just tells God what he sees taking place. This is, this is very raw. How many are my foes? People are saying that there's no help for me in God. And he just comes out and he says to the Lord, this is the way it is. This is what I'm seeing, God. It's very unceremonious. Very unceremonious. Eugene Peterson, when when he wrote about the Psalms, he said this. Our habit is to talk about God, but not to him. We love discussing God. 
especially if, if uh, a denomination like the Presbyterian Church in America, we love to talk about God, and we love to talk about doctrine and theology, and that's good. But Peterson says, we love discussing God, but the Psalms resist these discussions. They are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to him. We would rather have a religious bull session, Peterson writes. But David's honesty is deeper than a religious observance. Goes deeper than religious formality. This is a direct, honest, raw dialogue between him and his creator about what's taking place in his life. He's got his eyes open and he's just saying to God, this is what's going on. Everyone's against me. That's his sentiment. It feels as though everyone's against me. It seems as though many people are saying, we have no confidence in you. Everybody's doubting me. And it's all coming from my son. I mean, I don't care if the whole nation is against me, but my son is against me. And that's worse than everybody else. And I don't want to fight him. David is, is not only terrorized, but he's grief stricken. In my house, Kung Fu Panda is on uh, almost constantly. I don't know if you've seen Kung Fu Panda. I've probably seen one and two ten times in the last month. Um, and it's, one of, it's kind of like... Um, uh, it, by influence. I'm not intentionally watching it, but it's on and I can see the images and I hear it as I'm going around the house cleaning dishes and who knows what I'm doing. But Kung Fu Panda is in the background. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's, it's this classic scenario where Master Shifu has raised up, um, raised up Tai Long and Tai Long goes bad. But he's powerful. He's, he's, the, he's the most powerful warrior in all of ancient China. And he's threatening the peace and prosperity of, of the land. And, and Shifu can stop it, but he's torn because this, this is like his son. This is like his son. And he's, he's having a hard time doing the right thing because he's so emotionally connected to, to this villain who's destroying the countryside. So David is, it's not just that there's a coup, but he's brokenhearted. Now, in true prayer, you don't just vent. You do. God welcomes you to vent to him honestly in your prayers. But, but the kind of prayer that we're seeing here in Psalm 3, it goes beyond venting. It starts there. It's perfectly legitimate. It starts with venting, but it, it goes beyond venting. So the Psalms... The Psalms invite us to be honest with God, but the Psalms invite us also to remember God's past benefits. The Psalms encourage honesty, but the Psalms also encourage contemplation. Right? God's just not saying, be honest with me. God's saying, think about, think about what's happened in the past. Think about what I've done for you in the past. Despite David's past sins, and he had some big ones, and despite his current grief, he's expressing confidence in God's ability to save, isn't he? He turns from the venting and he says to God, you are a shield about me. David was a soldier for many years. David was a shepherd in a hostile wilderness. David was an exile running from the first king of Israel. And he knew that God, time and time again, 
was a shield to him as a, as a warrior and as a refuge. He says to God, you are my glory. This is so important because what he's saying here is that people and circumstances don't determine my worth. You determine my worth, he prays. God determines his worth. God is his glory. We were created for glory. But glory can only be found in our standing before our creator. And David remembers that. Regardless of, regardless of the fact that half the nation distrusts me and wonder if your spirit of anointing has left me as king, I know that my glory, that my worth comes from you and not their opinion of me. Not whether I'm successful or a failure, but your opinion of me. That's my worth. That's my glory. He says, you're the lifter of my head. We sang a song earlier today where we repeated this phrase, lift, I lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes. He's the giver of life. Well, sometimes, you know, you're so discouraged that you can't lift your eyes up. You can't do it. And David's saying here, when that happens, you lift my head. You lift my head up when I can't lift it myself. There was, a, there was an old worship song we sang in college, you are my all in all. And there's one phrase where you are my strength when I am weak. And that's what David's saying right here. When I can't, you lift me up. You encourage me when I'm depressed, when all I see is destruction and disappointment and grief and mistrust, when other people don't want to be around me. You know, Eric Clapton said, nobody, nobody cares about you when you're down and out. Well, when, you're down, when I'm down and out and nobody trusts me, you lift up my head. You give me something to hope in. You give me my confidence back. He then says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, last week in Psalm 2, we just, who's, who's on God's holy hill? That's Zion. That's Jerusalem. Who's on the holy hill? The king is on the holy hill. Well, who's the ultimate king? It's not just this Messiah, this flesh and blood Messiah. It's, it's the true king. It's God himself is on his holy hill. And what else is on the holy hill? The temple. And what's in the temple? The Ark of the Covenant to the Jews. God's law, God's promises, God's covenant, all represented by the holy hill. And David's saying, I cried out to the Lord for help, and he answered me from his holy hill. David remembers that God is still on his throne. Hey, they're trying to, they're trying to boot me out of my throne, but God's still on his throne, and he's still speaking and declaring his promises to me from his throne. Finally, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, I'm not a soldier, uh, but those of you who have had military experience understand the value of a safe night's sleep. In battle, in hostile territory, to fall asleep and get sleep and wake up alive and wake up not captured is a good thing. And David remembers that's happened time and time again, that God takes such good care of me that even in hostile territory, I have woken up, having gotten rest, still alive. And so in a series of ways, David is simply remembering how God preserved him in past adversity. This was a habit of his. This was a habit of his. He was a believer from very early in life. This was a habit of David's when he was very young. He was a teenager and, and he went up to the battle lines to bring his older brother some food. And they said, get the heck out of here. And, and he said, well, what's going on? And, well, there's this big guy, Goliath, and he's, everybody's afraid to fight him. I'll fight the guy. 
and King Saul hears about it. And, and Saul says, You're gonna, nobody wants to fight this guy. He's enormous. We're all petrified of him. And David said to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David read his past experience by faith. He read his past with eyes of faith, with God's perspective. Some people presuppose that there is no God, that, um, that because there's no God or because we really, you know, God is distant. We can't know anything about him if he does exist. If he exists, he's far away, he doesn't care about us. So you really can't interpret the events of your life with any meaning. There's no God or we don't know if he's there. And so we really can't interpret what happens in our lives. If, if anything good has happened to people, it's because of coincidence. They were lucky. They were in the right place, talking to the right person at the right time. Their, their benefits, you know, the good that's happened to them in their life, it's chance. It's luck. Or it's the result of natural advantage. In some way, they were born or developed, a, they were a step ahead of everybody else. And, that, and that's some people's uh, presupposition. Maybe it's yours. You don't know that God's there. And when you look at the events of your life, good and bad, you go, I, I don't know that it means anything. I really don't. And so some people throughout the centuries have said, well, it's kind of silly to be religious. People like Sigmund Freud and people like Karl Marx, they said, well, religion is it's it's well intended, but it's really just a way to help weak people deal with the fear of the unknown. And, and it's 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 like an opium for the people, Karl Marx said, because in a hard, cruel, cold world, it's it's like a drug. Religion gets us through. Well, I would just offer kindly that uh, the Bible presupposes just the opposite. David presupposes that there is a God who exists, who is in complete control of the universe and his life. And so it is, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a panacea. It's perfect. If God exists and if he is in control of the universe and if he cares deeply about us, then it is perfectly reasonable for David and for you to say, my life means something. The events of my life, the events of my past, the good and the bad mean something because there is a God and he is present and he cares very much about what's going on in the world and in my life. So David, I think the burden of proof is on you. If you believe religion is silly because there is no God, you can't prove that. So I'm just going to kindly, friend, push it back on you and say, David thinks the opposite. There is a creator and he can interpret the events of his life in the light of the creator's ways and truth. Now, David believed that God was the author of his past success. God was the author of his help. It wasn't a coincidence. There was a purpose behind everything that happened. And so now in verse 6, David can say, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves around me, set themselves against me all around. He makes, this is really practically what faith looks like in adversity. David makes a choice to trust in God's present help because he remembered God's past help. That's living by faith through adversity. 
actively saying, I will not be afraid. I will trust God because he has been my past help. And so I know he's going to be my help right now. And listen, interpreting your life, interpreting your past by faith, it not only, it not only helps you to trust God, it helps you to distrust yourself. I know if you, you've grown up in America in the last 40 years, 40, 50 years, you've heard this over and over again. Believe in yourself. Just believe in, it's like, it's like that's an opium for the masses, I would, I would put to you, okay? An ineffective, an ineffective panacea in a difficult world is actually believing in yourself when you know full well that you are not completely reliable. Not completely reliable. I actually think interpreting your past by faith helps you get sober about yourself, Helps you to distrust yourself. I don't, mean, I don't mean hate yourself and look down on yourself. I mean, don't put your trust in yourself, but put it in God. He, let's, let's look at David and how he did this. David acknowledged some culpability in this whole situation. There was a time in David's life where he became a monster, quite frankly. Okay? And that was the beginning of this whole disaster. But now, years later, he sees it for what it is, and he recognizes his own culpability. And in this, and in this story about what Absalom did to him, there, there are two specific places where I think you see David sobering up about his past, and you see he's not trusting in himself in an unhealthy way. One point is this. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 15, the head priests, uh, David is escaping the city, in fear of his life, he had to leave. And uh, the priests say to him, well, we're taking the Ark of the Covenant with us. It's going to go, you're, you're the Lord's anointed. The Ark's going to follow you. And David replied to them, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. There's another instance of David's sobriety. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, uh, they're they're leaving the city and they're going up the Mount of Olives and and this guy is heckling David. He's he's hailing curses down on him. He's throwing rocks at them. The king. Turns out he's, he's a Benjaminite. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is one of Saul's distant relatives. David's predecessor, and he's just cursing David and throwing rocks at David, saying the worst things you can possibly imagine. And finally, one of David's aides says, let's cut this guy's head off. And this is how David responded to that. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. We can dissect that for another couple of hours. I'm not going to right now. But what you see in these two examples is David in humility, remembering that he must trust God and not put trust in himself. He interpreted his past humbly. Are you? Be aware of people who cannot or won't interpret their past with humility. 
Don't marry them if you can help it. Don't hire them if you can help it. Be wise around them if you can help it. Because there is great destruction and much grief when we are unable to interpret our past with humility. Putting too much trust in ourselves and not enough trust in our Savior, in our God. And that leads me to this next point, which is understanding that we can't really endure adversity well if we won't contemplate the past well. You want to deal with adversity well. You've got to think about your past in the right state of mind. It's a dangerous thing to remember the good in your past and say, I did that. That was me. I, I, the reason I'm where I am today is because I studied harder than other people. I went to the right school or I practiced harder. I practiced longer. I found the right coach. That's why I am to, where I am today. I joined the right cause. I was associated with the right movement. I voted for the right person. I've associated with the right friends. And so that's why I am what I am. Well, maybe so. Maybe one of those is true for you. Maybe they're all true for you. But, you know, friend, you got to beware of focusing on your contributions to your past successes. And here's why. It feeds a bad habit. We saw in David as a, as a young man a good habit. Hey, God saved me from the lion and from the bear, and God's going to save me from Goliath. We see a good habit in David now. God's, God kept me alive in path. I've been, I've been a hunted man before, living in caves, and God kept me alive. My son's hunting me now. He's going to keep me alive now. But, but there are bad habits also, okay? Looking at your past and saying, I'm, I, am where I, I am what I am because of that. Because I was just a little smarter. I was just a little bit better. At Somewhere along the lines, I made the right decision. And that's where I am today. Again, that all may be true, but you've got to be careful. Because that develops a bad habit of relying on yourself. Or relying on someone else. Or relying on something when only God can help you. Because there are times when only God's going to be able to help you. You're not going to be able to pull out your tool, your tool belt and find the tool that saved you in the past. Or say the right thing. Or call the right person. You're not always going to have something up your sleeve. There are times where only God can help. And when you're standing in his presence, in his holy presence, someday... If you're simply clothed in your own tool belt, with your own resume, with your own record of good deeds and good experiences, you will not find help in the presence of a holy and righteous God. C.S. Lewis wrote something in, in, his, in his screw tape letters that I think is helpful. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the screw tape letters, but C.S. Lewis writes all these journal entries of a fictitious demon called Uncle Screwtape. And he has this little nephew named Wormwood. And he keeps writing these... He writes, he writes his nephew advice on how to take down a Christian that Wormwood has been assigned to. It's a, it's, it's a fantasy. It's very entertaining, but it's very insightful for our lives. You get, to, you get to read a demon's perspective on how to make life miserable for a confessing Christian. 
even though the Christian doesn't know that the demon is involved. That's, that's the premise. At one point, Uncle Screwtape writes this to Wormwood. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Remember, he's writing in the 40s and 50s. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. They sound ridiculous. What, what are some of the issues today? You know, like th- think of our world, think of America and our society right now. And what would C.S. Lewis, what would Uncle Screwtape write? Get him to believe in Christianity and you can fill in the blank. Christianity and conservatism. Christianity and liberalism. Christianity and, hey man, pick your cause. Pick your party. Pick your job. You know, Christianity and the environment. Christianity and exercise. You can, you can, we can go on and on and on, can't we? And it's not that those things are bad as, as good causes. That's not what Lewis is saying. Uncle Screwtape goes on. If they must be Christians, at least let them be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Now, the same old thing is living by faith. Time and time again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see it again and again. Live by faith. Trust my word. The ancient Israelites, all the nations around them had all this cool stuff. Smoke and images and, and statues that you could see and touch. And sensuality is part of religion and it makes the crops grow. All these exciting, sensual things to do. See, touch, feel. What did the Israelites have? The word of God. Listen to my voice and trust me. And after a while, that got boring for the Israelites. And, and what the demons know, C.S. Lewis says, is after a while, for a sinner... Living by faith in God's promises is going to get boring. So spice Christianity up, spice faith up so that they're really not living by faith at all. But by some form of Christianity that really isn't faith. It's something else. So ask yourself, am I living by Christ's salvation and fill in the blank? Are you trusting in someone else or something else and calling it Christianity? C.S. Lewis wrote in another place, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. As long as we believe that our help is partially, even just a tad up to us, we will never fully trust in God. That's the danger in thinking that, that God brings 99% and you bring 1% to the table. That's the danger in looking back at your past and saying, I did that. I'm blessed because of that. I'm a Christian because of that. I'm a good person. People like me because of that. That's the danger because you start believing it. You start believing, well, God helped me get there. That's not what David's saying. David's not saying, I'm doing well, Lord, but if you can just do this last 10% for me, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this coup. My son's going to turn around. It's going to work out. No, it, it doesn't say that at all. David is fully trusting in God. See, I think this is why you're afraid in your adversity. Because you're thinking you've got to make it happen. You've got to work it out. You've got to solve the problem. You've got to be strong for yourself. Either you or someone else or some cause or something. And so you're afraid because you know you can't fully trust in yourself. You can't do it perfectly. No one else can and nothing else will. And so in a sense, not fully trusting in God is, it, is what breeds fear. And that's why we're afraid. Because somewhere along the lines, we actually believe that it's God and fill in the blank to save us and to help us. But David in his desperation is not saying that. And actually, what you see now is that the Psalms not only invite you to be honest with God, brutally honest. The Psalms not only invite you to remember God's past benefits. The Psalms invite you to ask for God's help. Maybe you think we don't have to talk about that, but we really do. Because David talks about it. He says in verse 7, arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Don't you want to go through your troubles? Don't you want to go through adversity free of fear? Adversity is tough enough as it is. You want to be afraid as you go through it? God's saying you have a way out. You don't have to go through this afraid if you fully trust in me who cannot fail. You're afraid of failure somewhere, whether it's from you or from somebody you can't control or some institution you can't control. God is saying, you put your faith totally in me, you won't be afraid because I'm not going to fail. And David knew that. And so in verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah said that right before he got spit out of a whale. He had to learn the hard way, but he eventually said it too. Salvation belongs to the Lord. People have said that this sums up the Bible. These words sum up Christianity itself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice it says he's, he doesn't share it. He doesn't share the ministry of salvation. He owns it. He's not sharing. He's not sharing his duty and privilege and ministry of salvation with you. He owns salvation and he offers it to you as a gift. That's why it's called a gift in scripture because you can't make it happen. It's a gift that he owns and he gives to you graciously. And it's a gift that we need. And here's why. Like it or not, we are much more like Absalom in this story than we are like David in this story. We're, we're, the, we're the conspirators. I hope you can see yourself in Absalom's shoes. That we, Absalom's rebellion against a, a, a broken, sinful father, you know, an imperfect king. Absalom's rebellion led, it cost him his life in the end. Well, our rebellion, the Bible tells us that our rebellion against a perfect father and heavenly king, it cost Jesus his life. Not you. It didn't cost you yours. The Christian life 
Being a Christian, following Jesus, basically means learning how to live by this slogan. And you can call it a slogan. You can call it a bumper sticker. You can call it whatever you want. But following Jesus, true Christianity, mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis called it, is believing this and living by it, that salvation belongs to the Lord. So we can trust God fully, not mostly, He wants us to trust him fully in adversity, considering by faith, right? Living by faith, looking at your past by faith from God's perspective, looking at how through through uh, great experiences and through your biggest tragedies, God has been there. God has been working in you and through you all along. Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians tells the Christian, you have been loved from before God set the world spinning. The Bible tells us that you have been redeemed by what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he hung on a Roman cross. An innocent son judged in the place of sons and daughters who decided to become conspirators, conspirators against their heavenly father. Considering God in your past, now you can say, you know what? I'm going to trust him today in my adversity because of who he is and what he has done for me in the past. And you know what? As we see in David's example, this will prepare you for trusting him in the future. You're laying a solid foundation now, trusting him, developing a good habit of remembering his benefits to you. And it's not only going to comfort you today, it's going to comfort you tomorrow. And guess what? There's another added blessing. As God comforts you, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now you're going to be able to comfort others as they suffer through the same things you've suffered through. If David had not endured adversity, we wouldn't be comforted by his psalm right now. If Jesus hadn't endured adversity, there'd be no comfort in the universe. But we have comfort because he has endured and he rose again. And he was victorious. So, your faith through today's adversity can carry you through tomorrow's also. I want to leave you with one comment that one commentator made. He said, you know, in, in, in all likelihood, our troubles are nothing compared to what David went through. On the other hand, David's expectations of how God would save are nothing compared to what we know of how God has saved. David probably went through way worse than you're going through right now. But you have greater hope and greater expectation than he could ever imagine. He didn't know how God would resolve it. You do. It's all about a cross and an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. Live by faith. That Jesus alone saves. That salvation belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for eyes of faith. That see history. That see our lives. String of events. Positive, negative. Wonderful, frightening. Encouraging, discouraging, 
We ask for eyes of faith that see your hand in every struggle, in every victory, in every event of our lives. Father, we know that we are not you. We are not omniscient. So help us to avoid the temptation of trying to interpret with our own wisdom everything that has happened to us and every word that has been said. We know you don't promise that. But you have promised much. And help us to rely on what we know you have already said and what we know you have already done in your word. And and Father, help us to interpret our own lives in the light of your word, in the light of what you've already said. Father, there's so much going around, there's so much going on around us. It is hard for us to simply live by faith and nothing else and and trust in Christ and in no one else or in nothing else. Uh, But we know that you are greater. You are greater than the forces at work in this world uh, to discourage us. So give us faith that chooses to remember you and chooses to not be afraid and put our trust in you. Lord, may our adversity uh, be be our greatest hours, be our, our finest days where we learn to trust you the most. In Christ's name, amen.